0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and this morning we are going to consider Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, but I'm going to read the first five verses for us since it's been a couple of weeks since I began this series in Acts, and just want us to remember what we've already heard. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our Lord once again and ask for his help as we hear his word. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as the world continues to rage around us, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to understand and endure global trials and just the everyday trials that we face. We thank you that you have given us your word, a word that is complete and clear. And we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to strengthen us and fill us with your powerful presence. And so we ask that once again you would work by the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to strengthen us to do what you have called us to do each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 1. And again, I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach Which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Later in The book of Acts, when the apostle Paul arrives in Ephesus, he finds some disciples who had believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who were not living in the full power of that gospel. So Paul asks them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They replied, No we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, more than likely, their reply was not actually, they had never heard of the Holy Spirit, but they did not know about Pentecost. They did not know that the Holy Spirit had come. And I think some of us Christians are like those disciples. Not that we are completely ignorant of Pentecost. We, We've heard of Pentecost, or that we lack the Holy Spirit. But if we're honest, some of us are still at least a little bit confused about and forgetful of the importance of Pentecost. Some of us don't really understand how Pentecost fits into the gospel story. In some ways, we think of it as an appendix or an add-on to the work of Christ. We think of it in terms of gospel application, not gospel accomplishment. So we're confused. Others of us live day to day as if Pentecost never happened, as if it has no bearing on our everyday life. We're forgetful. Yet Pentecost is crucial to gospel understanding and to gospel living. So I am going over the next several weeks to work very slowly through the first two chapters of Acts. Once we get past the first two chapters, I'm going to pick up the pace a lot. I I have promised we will not be here for the rest of our lives. Well, maybe some of the rest of our lives, but not because I'm going too slow. Because Pentecost is the hinge. It is the great turning point in the, the one story of Luke and Acts. This is pivotal for Luke. If we get these two chapters wrong, therefore, we're not going to properly understand and apply the rest of the book. We are going to get lost in chapters three through the end. And so we're going to move slowly. I'm also going to move slowly through these opening chapters because I do think that many of us as Christians are Confused about some of the significant themes that Luke mentions and assumes we understand, and yet we may not. As I see the many Christian debates that continue to rage online, it appears to me that many of us are still very confused about the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and the kingdom of God and the mission of the church and baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand these themes and how they relate to one another. So today, we are especially going to consider baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in verse 5. And I don't want you to be confused. What I'm talking about this morning is not so much the ceremony of baptism that we often celebrate up here when we pour or sprinkle water on people. We're going to talk about the spiritual reality that is signifying and sealing to us. This is only one piece of the Pentecost puzzle. There's a lot more we're going to learn about Pentecost over the next several weeks, but this is a significant piece. So I'm going to describe two aspects of spirit baptism with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to try to explain how this relates to Christ's baptism, and then I will conclude with two applications in light of this reality. So what is spirit baptism? Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Well, here are two paradigms that you need to have in order to understand this phenomenon. Number one, you need to understand that spirit baptism is the fulfillment Of the Father's eternal promise. Luke, as we know from the opening verses, is writing to a man named Theophilus, who was possibly a a recent convert to Christianity, or at, at the very least, he was a man who was considering the claims of Christianity, So, in Luke's first volume, what we know as the Gospel of Luke, Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This includes his birth, his public ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and Luke ends with a brief mention of Christ's ascension. So, in the beginning of Acts, Luke is essentially giving us a a brief recap of everything that he's already explained to Theophilus. He especially reminds us of what happened in the period between Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven. And during those 40 days we see that Jesus was not only proving to the disciples that he really was raised he really was alive he was spending time during those 40 days to teach them the scriptures to walk again with them through the old testament and show them how it all pointed To him. So we read in Luke 24, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Now let me just pause here for a minute. Because Jesus is about to send these apostles out into the world. And he has given them a world-altering mission. And they are going to endure a lot of hardship and suffering. They are going to live in a period of great upheaval in the Roman Empire and in the Jewish community. And what does he spend his 40 last days on earth with them doing? Opening their minds to understand the scripture. See, some of us may think sometimes, okay, pastor, do you know what's going on in Ukraine? Do you know what's going on in Israel? Do you know what I'm facing every single day? The sorrows, the suffering, the trials. And you're going to get up here again and just talk about a couple of verses. Teach me what, what it means. Can't you be more practically helpful? And I would simply respond to you that Jesus believed the most practical and powerful way he could prepare and help his disciples to do what he was calling them to do was to make sure they understood the Bible. There is nothing that I can do to help you live every day as God is calling you to live and endure whatever he may be calling you to do than to get up here week after week and by God's grace, try to open your minds to the scriptures. Jesus taught them the word. It's not all he does for them. But we see in Acts chapter 1 that Luke summarizes all of this by saying, Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now The gospel writers often summarize the gospel in kingdom terms. Jesus' ministry, in one sense, can be understood as kingdom ministry. We know in Mark chapter 1, Jesus came preaching, proclaiming the kingdom. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is about the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't come preaching the kingdom. He came to bring and build the kingdom he was proclaiming. For salvation is, in one sense, entrance into the kingdom that Christ has built. Now, I'm going to talk a lot more next week about the kingdom of God, but for now, we need to understand that the kingdom, in the terms Christ is referring to, is not just God's general, universal rule of the world, because Jesus believes something new. Something decisive is happening with his coming. Something is changing. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And God has always been the creator and ruler of the universe. That can't be what Jesus is talking about. So the kingdom is not just God's eternal rule in the sense Jesus is using. It's not just some ideal moral order as if you have a nation that that has some Christian values and all that that's now the kingdom. The kingdom is the sphere of salvation. It is the fulfillment and culmination of God's covenant promise to save his people from their sin so that they can live now with God as their God, and they are God's people. So the kingdom is specifically where God rules through his promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is a redemptive rule. The Jews understood that history would essentially consist of two parts, what they called the present age, the age before the promised Messiah would come, and the age to come, the age when God would send his Savior and everything would change. Or think of it in terms of what we learned in the letter to the Hebrews. The the present age was the age of the old covenant. The age to come is the inauguration and fulfillment of the new covenant. So the Messiah would come. He would inaugurate the new covenant. He would establish the kingdom of God. That was God's promise. But what we need to see here is that this promise would not be fulfilled until God sent his spirit. The kingdom of God is inseparable from the spirit of God. Life in the spirit is life in the kingdom. So as Jesus opens the scriptures to his disciples and speaks about the kingdom of God and that they're going to be his witnesses, he says in Luke 24, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And again, here in Acts chapter 1, you see that as Jesus speaks to them about the kingdom of God, he tells them again to wait for the promise of God, which he says is baptism with the Holy Spirit. So there's no kingdom without the Spirit. This is why they must Wait, they cannot do kingdom work without kingdom power. And God's spirit is his power, which he promised to give us. You heard it in Luke 24. To receive the Holy Spirit was to be clothed with power from on high. Peter, when he preaches at Pentecost, points to how God had given this promise long before Jesus came. Peter refers to Joel chapter 2, but you also find this promise in places like Isaiah 32, when God says he will pour out his spirit upon us from on high. Or Isaiah 44, when God says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So, the promise of the coming kingdom is, in one sense, the promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. These are inseparable. Yet, don't think of the Holy Spirit as some impersonal force, that it's just a synonym for God's power. This isn't Star Wars, where the Holy Spirit is just kind of the force that fills everything and lets you do some cool tricks. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is the third person of the one triune God, and yet the Spirit is God's greatest gift to his people. The the gift of the Spirit is the gift of all gifts, and this is what God gives at Pentecost. Therefore, the gospel is not complete without Pentecost. The promise is not fulfilled until Pentecost. Without the Spirit, the promise remains unfulfilled. The kingdom remains uninhabited. The new covenant remains unrealized. So no Pentecost, no gospel. It is, in many ways, the public presentation of the kingdom of God. And so the Father's plan was always intended to culminate not with the sending of his Son, but with the sending of his Spirit. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is, therefore, in the most general sense, receiving the Spirit God Has sent. It is to have the Spirit poured out upon you. And the Spirit then applies to you all that Christ has done for you. It is to be washed, to be cleansed, to be renewed. It is to have a decisive change in who you are. In one sense, it is to be saved, to be forgiven. For this is the fulfillment of the Father's eternal promise. But number two, therefore, we have to understand that spirit baptism is the final piece of Christ's completed work. Notice that it is not the Holy Spirit who baptizes you. You're not baptized by the Spirit. You're baptized with the Spirit. So who baptizes you? The answer is twofold. First, it is God the Father who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the disciples are told to wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus says in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Again, Jesus says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. It's equally true, though, to say that Jesus baptizes you with his Holy Spirit. When John the Baptist is asked, Are, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? John says, No. And he makes the argument based on baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is referring to Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. To you. So spirit baptism is the Father's work. Spirit baptism is Christ's work. For remember what we learned in week one in Acts, Acts is not so much about the Acts of the Apostles, it is about the Acts of Christ. Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Now through his word, through his spirit, which will empower his apostles. So Christ came in one sense so that he could send his Holy Spirit. And when we understand that Pentecost is the culmination of God's gospel promise and it is part of Christ's completed work, we recognize that Pentecost falls first within the sphere of gospel accomplished, and only then is it about the gospel applied. Now, one of the reasons this is important is because we need to understand Pentecost is not repeatable. This is not something that happens over and over and over again, as if it was the first baptism in a series of baptisms. This is where I I, I think some of my beloved charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, whom I love yet disagree with here, get confused. Pentecost Is not the repeated pattern of Christian experience as if okay, now this is what we all are to expect that's going to happen to us individually, in one sense, yes, but in this first sense, no. Pentecost is not repeatable, even though it has ongoing implications for Christian experience, it is not the normative pattern. Pentecost falls into the same category as the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It is his once for all work, which we enter into and receive when we receive him by faith. So the Holy Spirit will never be sent again. In fact, the good news of Pentecost is he is here, and he is here to stay. The Father and the Son sent him. They did this at Pentecost. So Pentecost was the decisive baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire that John said Jesus would do. So we must personally receive and apply this once for all work by faith, but the personal application of this work is not the repetition of it any more than we would say when we become Christians, Christ was crucified again or risen again. No, we are just entering into the reality of what Christ did once for all. So all the benefits of Christ's work are ours by faith. That includes spirit baptism. Those who believe enter into the kingdom of God where Christ reigns and the spirit works. When we are spiritually baptized, therefore, what you need to understand is you are entering into the one baptism. It's not a second baptism. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians? He says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. The glory of our baptism is that we are entering into the reality of the one baptism. So think of it like this. In the past year, my wife and I, well, we brought our kids too. We all moved into a new house. They didn't have to stay in the old house. though. So we, we thought the new house might last longer if they stayed in the old house, but we brought them with us. And for the first time now, we live in a house that that has a well. So every house in our, our neighborhood, we each have our own well. There's, there's no central water system. We, we don't get city water anymore. In one sense, this is what the Spirit's activity was like before Pentecost. You need to understand, Pentecost is not when the Spirit starts working in the world for the first time. He's been working in the world from the beginning. No one comes to faith apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So Abraham and David and Moses, they had the Holy Spirit. But just think of it in one sense, like, there were wells out there that the Spirit was was working in with with individuals, but there was not yet this central water system. So the kingdom of God is like a new city that has built, and there's a central city, there's a central system. Pentecost is like the day the water is turned on for the first time. And now water is flowing to every house in that city, in that kingdom. Now the kingdom is still being built. More houses are being built. More people are getting to move, move in. But they're moving in to houses that are connected to that water system. The water doesn't need to be turned on again. It's already on. It's already flowing. That's how I think we, we should think about Pentecost and our conversions. When we are converted, we get to move into the kingdom of God, and we've got city water now. It's not that, oh, okay, now every time the, the city's flowing, the, the water's flowing, the Spirit is here. Christ's saving work is finished, including the saving work of sending His Holy Spirit. And by faith, all of that work is applied to us, and we receive the blessings of Christ's obedient life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, and Christ's sending of his Spirit. Pentecost is never repeated. It's simply applied repeatedly. By faith, we enter the kingdom, we receive its power, we drink its water, which is the Holy Spirit. This is important, therefore, for recognizing Pentecost is not a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. I think we, again, can get confused here when we don't understand the unique time in redemptive history that Pentecost is happening within. Yes, the disciples already had the Holy Spirit. They were already regenerated and renewed but they still had to wait for for this moment in redemptive history when the Holy Spirit would come and they would receive him to an even greater degree and extent than they had before. But that's because of when they lived, that it came in two stages. It's just like thinking Jesus tells his disciples before he dies on the cross, you are cleansed, you're washed of your sin. Now, he had to die on the cross for that experience to be finalized and, and truly realized. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness. But it's not as if they had to experience two washings with Christ's blood before and after his crucifixion. It was just his crucifixion was now the full reality that they were already trusting in. The same is true with spirit spirit. Baptism. So while we see it happen in stages for the disciples, for us, the regeneration and empowering of the Holy Spirit all happens at the same time because Pentecost has already happened. Spirit baptism, therefore, is receiving the Spirit and all that He does for you. Christian, you already have the Spirit in full. You don't have to be thinking, well, what more do I have to, to do so I can really have the Holy Spirit? So yes, I I know He saved me, but now I want the full power of the Holy Spirit. I want that second blessing. Are you a Christian? You already have it. You don't need a second blessing. Every believer has the Spirit to the same degree, even though not every believer utilizes the Spirit to the same degree. And so not everyone experiences the fullness that they have. It's not because they lack the Spirit. It's because sometimes we neglect the Spirit. Again, you think of two houses in in the kingdom of God, and one person looks at their neighbor and like, well, they their water's running all the time. They're showering, they're they're washing, they're drinking, and I I don't have any water. Well, have have you ever turned the faucet on? Oh no, do I have to do that? Yeah, if you want water, you got to turn on the shower, got to turn on the sink. The sending of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of God's eternal promise, and it is the final piece of Christ's completed work. Now, in explaining it this way, am I downplaying the cross and resurrection of of Christ? After all, aren't we we all to be Christ crucified? Why, Why all this emphasis on sending the Spirit? Pastor, are you a closet Pentecostal? Not a closet Pentecostal. I am a Pentecostal. I mean, you could call this Good Shepherd Pentecostal Church for all I care. It's it's true because we believe in the ongoing significance of Pentecost. But this is not downplaying the cross and resurrection. It's showing you why we needed the cross and resurrection. For Christ first had to be baptized in order for us to be baptized. For as Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the promised baptism with the Holy Spirit, he refers back to John's baptism, referring to John the Baptist. Now, John's baptism was a preparatory and temporary baptism of repentance. To receive John's baptism was essentially to acknowledge I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. It was to turn to God and say, I need salvation. But John's baptism was not a baptism of salvation. What does John say? I- I'm just baptizing you with water. You need a greater baptizer and a greater baptism than what I can give you. This is why he points to Jesus. And he says, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, when you hear those verses together you think, wait, baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire doesn't actually sound like such good news. This sounds like final judgment. And in one sense, Pentecost is the beginning of final judgment. So Jesus eventually comes. John baptizes Jesus with water. At this time, the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, which was saying, this is my Messiah. This is the one I approve to to save you from your sins. Then the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, which again is not Jesus receiving the Spirit for the first time. The Spirit's the one who conceived Jesus in the womb, but it is here is his empowering. He is receiving the Spirit to do all that he is called to do. But you notice that part of what Jesus has to do is separate the wheat from the chaff. There is the winnowing fork, there is final judgment. So, why is Pentecost good news for us? For fire, after all, is a sign throughout the Old Testament of judgment, of destruction. Though it also can be used as a sign of purification, of refinement. The reason that our baptism with the Spirit and fire is a saving event is because in Jesus' baptism, he experienced the condemnation side of the equation. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled— I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In one sense, Jesus' entire ministry of suffering was baptism with spirit and fire, which culminated at the cross. And it was only then that the fire came in form. But the good news for us is that when Jesus was on the cross, the fire of God's wrath and judgment was exhausted. So that for those who receive Christ by faith, that fire will not destroy you, but you will come through it refined and purified. Perhaps this is why tongues of fire rested on the disciples at Pentecost. You know, that says there's tongues of fire. I think Part of the significance is it was a sign their baptism with spirit and fire was gracious rather than destructive. So Pentecost is the fulfillment of John's words. It is when Jesus decisively baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. But this was good news because Jesus had already consumed the fire of God's wrath. And so, for those who receive Jesus by faith, this baptism confirms salvation, not condemnation. Christ bore the curse in his baptism so we could receive the blessing in ours. Pentecost, therefore, is not moving away from the cross and the resurrection. Pentecost is showing you the full power of the cross and resurrection. You'll notice that in Acts chapter 2, when Peter begins preaching, here's the day of the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter start preaching about? Christ crucified. Because that's why this is really good news for God's people. So Pentecost is the good news that the old covenant has given way to the new. The age to come has come. The kingdom of God is at hand and God now dwells with his people in peace without consuming them in the fire of his wrath. Because of the cross, Pentecost is the good news that God has now made his home with his children. you Remember when Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. To send his Spirit was to send himself. And he adds, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him." Pentecost is the father and son making their home with their children. This is the fulfillment of Christ's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. Do you see how precious Pentecost is? Do you see how fundamental it is to understanding the gospel? And applying the gospel. If all of this is true. How then should you respond? Here are just two brief ways. First is hopefully obvious. I've already said it many times. If this is true. And you desire to receive the Holy Spirit of God. You must receive Christ by faith. See, it's not, okay, how do I receive the the Spirit? Well, the, the answer is, you must believe in Jesus Christ, because it's His Spirit. There is no sending apart from Christ, and so to receive Christ is to receive the Spirit. You're not waiting for something else after you receive Jesus. Every Christian has been baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment of their conversion. This was Peter's message on Pentecost. As he's preaching and they cry out, what, what do we do? He says, repent. Believe in Jesus and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Christian, I would simply and gently exhort you, as I must exhort myself, don't forget what you have already received. You have the Holy Spirit, not in part, but in full. He is with you. The water is running in your house. Turn on the faucet. Sometimes we live as if the Spirit never came. How how do we do this? How do we embrace what God has given us? By the means of grace. As we pray, as we read our Bibles, as we participate in corporate worship, as we partake of the sacraments, we are using the gift that God has given us. But what good is a gift that you never use? This past Thursday was my daughter Talitha's birthday. She was very excited. She turned six. She got lots of presents. And I can tell you what she didn't do as we gave her presents. She did not open her pet presents and then keep them in their boxes and set them on the shelf. She opened them up. She ripped them open. She immediately started playing with them. God's gifts are intended to be used. There's a lot of talk about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are wonderful, they're good, but there's no greater gift than the gift of the Spirit, who will give you the gifts He determines to give you. But you all have Him. Use Him. My final. Resp- response is simply this. Every day, wait before you walk. At times, life feels overwhelming, doesn't it? You just turn on the news and you think, this I don't even know what to do. I don't even know how to think about this, respond to this. And that. that's just things that seem far from you. Then there's everything you're dealing with every day. You just think every morning, I, I don't know how I can endure another day. Just the, the little things feel too much for me. Obedience appears burdensome. We feel like we cannot do what God has called us to do, which is why I find such great comfort that as Jesus is about to send out his disciples, like I said, with a world-altering mission, and they may have been thinking, all right, let's go. The first thing Jesus says to them is, all right, guys, wait. Wait. It's hard to do. Now, why did they need to wait? Because Christ knows that you cannot do anything apart from Him. He knows your weakness, but He knows His power is made perfect in your weakness, and so He tells us to wait. He says, "I will come to you. I will be with you to the end of the age. Wait for the power from on high." One of the happiest days in. My life has been every day where we have four kids and I've always loved the day that we get to bring our kid home from the hospital. See, when you give birth to children, newsflash, you don't leave them at the hospital and you don't immediately send them out into the world and say, all right, go, good luck. You have children and you bring them home with you. Pentecost is God saying, You get to be at home with me now. I'm there. You have me every single day. The Spirit is new birth, and the Spirit is being at home with God. Now, you don't have to wait, therefore, in the exact same way the apostles had to wait. You're not waiting for the Spirit to come for the first time. You're not waiting for the Father and the Son to move in. But you still need to wait upon Him every day day you cannot walk by faith each day until you wait by faith each day what do i mean by that well i th- i think of my youngest son winston he's he's 2 years old he's still in his crib because the thing we learned with child number 1 you leave them in the crib as long as you can because as soon as there are no walls they will never be in their bed. So he could get out of his crib, but he hasn't quite figured that out yet. And one of the reasons is because every night we wrap him in a sleep, sleeping blanket, which we tell everyone, it's just to keep him warm and cozy. It's to keep his legs bound so that he can't leap over the crib. One time, first thing in the morning, he attempted to get out of the crib on his own. And you can imagine what happened. Flop. A two year old really can't take care of themselves. You have to dress them, you have to feed them, you have to get them out. So, Winston has learned the first thing that he does every morning when he wakes up is he stands up in his crib and he starts calling Daddy! Daddy! I, I, I thought I, I, I could make it sound really sweet. It's not sweet. He is demanding that I show up. And a lot of times I, I'm saying, okay, Winston, I'll be there in a minute. So he calls me and then he waits for me because he can't start his day until I get there. And then I take him out, I kiss him, I hug him, I get him dressed, I feed him, and then he can go his merry way. Now, why is Winston calling for me? It's because he knows I'm there. Right? I've already made my home with him. He's not waiting for me to move into the house calling, Hey, is is anybody there? He knows I'm there. He knows I'm coming. So he calls and he waits. That's how I think of daily devotions. We are waking up every day, and we've got a lot of things that God is calling us to do, but we cannot begin walking and doing them by faith until we have waited for our God by faith. And so as we read, as we pray, we are getting up and we are calling, Daddy, Daddy, I'm going to fall out of my crib if you, you don't come. But we call because we know he's there. That's the significance of Pentecost. He's come, he's there, and so every day we call, he comes, he empowers us, and we go forth and we do what he has called us to do. Christian, God will never call you to do what he has not equipped you to do, but sometimes you just have to wait, and he has given you his power, his spirit. He has given you himself. That is the good news of Pentecost. That is the glory of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we know that we we can't even sit here and listen to a sermon and be helped and changed by it if your Spirit isn't working. And so we call upon you once again to take your true good word and apply it to our hearts that we might be able to walk out these doors and live again by faith. Lord, I don't know everything that you are calling these dear brothers and sisters to do each day, but you do And I pray that you would help them grow in their understanding, just as I ask you to help me grow in my understanding of Pentecost and your Holy Spirit and the good news that you are here to stay. Help us, Father. Strengthen us. Give us grace to endure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.